The Young Jerks are sponsored by UFCW 1445, a labor union representing cannabis employees in Massachusetts. If you are a cannabis employee worried about your health and safety and are not being heard at work, UFCW local 1445.org or call them at 1-800-439-1445. Welcome, we're live. Mike Crawford, Young Jerks, great guest today. Got to admit, I'm still fuming about the caregiver thing. Uh, you better contact the Cannabis Control Commission and support caregivers. I have a caregiver in the state of Massachusetts. I want one. Actually, I have a caregiver in the state of Maine. I'm a mass resident with a caregiver in the state of Maine for medical cannabis. I want one in Massachusetts. <laughs> so we'll talk about that today. I, I think our audience knows what I'm talking about, but we have a great guest standing by right now. She's running for Massachusetts Governor's Council. Again, my name is Mike Crawford. This is the Young Jerks. Let's get right to it. Sunday night, 7 p.m. Uh, really excited about the guest we have. Uh, she's running for a position that really does need uh, choices, candidates. I think she's a really great candidate. Uh, I signed her nomination paperwork. Uh, she's running again for Massachusetts Governor's Council. It's a really important office that most of us never even heard of and know what it does. When you look into what it does, you realize how important it is, especially right now. Helena Fonts, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really great to be here um, on this Sunday evening. Thanks for everyone who's tuning in. Um, pleasure. We're really happy to have you here. I know some of our audience has been asking for it actually for a while. Um, you're running in which district is this? Is it District 6? Did I have that right? Yes, I'm running for the Governor's Council District 6. And um, for those who are were like myself for so many years asking yourselves, what is the Governor's Council? Um, it is an eight-member elected body responsible for examining and approving our judges, clerks, parole board, um, industrial accident board, industrial accident review board, right here in the Commonwealth. There are, there's an elected group of people um, who have uh, a lot of say and power and who sits on our benches in our courtrooms. So it's a huge deal. And district six covers uh, quite a few communities. It covers parts of Alston, parts of Brighton, Chelsea, Cambridge, Charlestown, Chinatown, Somerville, Everett, Malden, Lynn, Linfield, Nahant, Winthrop, Winchester, um, Wakefield, and Cambridge. Did I say Cambridge? And I will actually send a follow-up full list of all the cities, but there's quite a few communities in there. It's big That's big. a lot. That's yeah, a lot of right, right around me. What about Marblehead, Mass? Is that, Marblehead, that's in there. Yeah, yes, Marblehead's in there. Linfield, yep. And Lynn, Lynn is a big uh, community too that definitely has been impacted by the war on drugs, you know, the harm um, to, you know, minority communities, specifically to the poor. Yeah. Um, you've done work in, in the city of Lynn, I know that. Yeah, I have. Um, I am the program director of a mental health nonprofit um, in the Northeast Recovery Learning Community. And it is an entirely peer-run organization 
supporting people in their recovery from with the uh, mental health diagnosis, um, addiction recovery, um, traumatic life event, um, and then even re-entry. So individuals re-entering community from like psychiatric hospitalization or incarceration. And we do have an office in Lynn, one in Malden, Lawrence, and Lowell. How did you put two or two together to go from being a director of mental health, dealing with these issues every day to decide to run? Is this your first time running for office? This is my very first time running for office. And actually the journey that brought me here was really personal. It involves my oldest son, who's he's now 23. Um, when he was um, 16, only 16 years old, I remember he started having a lot of like mental health symptoms himself. And I was getting really concerned and I was calling around all of the different like mental health programs in my city and in the surrounding towns asking for help. At that time, the waits were six to nine months um, before he could be seen. In a final desperate attempt, I called up the Lynn DCF, DCF office one day and spoke to a woman in intake and I said, I need help. I'm concerned about my son. I'm afraid. Um, I cannot afford a $45,000 out of home placement. And um, the woman on the phone said to me that if he wasn't deemed like an imminent danger to himself or to others, there was nothing they could do. Within a week of that, my son had, was in the situation, um, had an uh, encounter with law enforcement. That was his first incarceration at 16. The turning point for me was at 18, because one incarceration I learned leads to others. It really opens that door for others. He's now 18 years old, where I'm at his second sentencing hearing, and I'll never forget the day, um, as his attorney is like reading a memorandum to the judge um, that included family history all the way to like my childhood up till that point. And sitting in that courtroom and hearing um, like the focus being placed on my childhood adversity. I'm someone who um, grew up in the foster care system and that seemed to be emphasized. And what was being implied that day was that it was my fault. Like that is like what the subtle messaging was simultaneously. My son is handcuffed and shackled. He's being escorted out of the courtroom. He just got sentenced to two years. He's look, he's, as he's leaving, he's looking at me. I can see his eyes welled up with tears. I'm feeling powerless. He's telling me he's sorry. And the judge, the look in his face, like that disgust and disdain as he's looking at the court documents, looking at my son, um, and I, I felt sorry as my son was leaving and telling, whispering to me, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, wow, I'm sorry. And no one should ever have to experience this. Like it felt so wrong. No, never any mention of like the mental health um, care that he needed and I wasn't able to get. So that's the moment when I said, I'm gonna do something. Um, and it stayed with me for a while. And when I learned about the governor's council, is I said, that's the something that I, I want to do. That's the change I want to make. How is your son doing now? He, my son actually is doing, I will say, um, a lot better. It's definitely kind of like an up and down, like slippery slope for the simple fact that he went on to have one other incarceration. Um, 
after that. So he's had three total, and this one was on a probation violation, which I learned during that time that the threshold and the burden of the Commonwealth to like prove without a reasonable doubt is so low. So if you're on probation and they just don't like that you happen to be somewhere someday, they can decide to put you in jail. Uh, and that was disheartening. Um, and what happens over time when someone's continuously put in these environments, which are punitive in nature, they're not like facilities of healing and treatment. And in fact, it's really difficult to get adequate care there, right? Um, is subconsciously um, over time, I see like I've, I've been like really talking to my son because this like the messaging there, like you're not, they don't use your name, they use your prison ID number. So people begin to take that on as an identity and begin to like ascribe that to himself. And so um, it's been an up and down journey. I am grateful now because he is finally after all this time starting to get the help that he needs. Um, but it's like, it's a work in progress. And, and I find that um, continued exposure to institutional settings, particularly prisons, um, is more harmful and contributes to poorer health outcomes than um, better health outcomes. So, so it's, been a, it's been up and down. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I think that's, I'm so glad you started right off with that because I'm almost ready to cry because I've, I've seen that so often in the past with with you know parents and their kids and when you have a kid with a mental health issue and the police don't treat it like a mental health issue um and they charge them and they convict them and they do it over and over again when the kid just needs some mental health i mean it's just uh how do we fix that how do we how does that get addressed because it doesn't I see a lot of cases I look at and people want, you know, you see the comments like, hang them, hang them, hang them. Yeah. And I, I get, I get the vengeance, like uh, on a certain respect, if someone does something awful to somebody, but a lot of times you read between the lines and you're like, someone had a mental health issue like this. Cause I've, I've, I've experienced at work, you know, someone, you know, in one of my past jobs, I've worked a million jobs. So we yeah. can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not outing anybody. I don't even know his name, but, um, a great kid had an issue had a schizophrenic break at work yeah. and you know his co-workers like basically called his family in because they were afraid that the police would arrest him and kill him you know mm -hmm. because he was a young black man and it's just like that's the kind of things that you deal with with a young man or a young person i always say young man because a lot of times it is young men and i've seen it with my own friends like because when it happens it's usually like you said 15 16 17 18 19 20 yeah. People don't know that they have these issues and then they just suddenly reveal themselves. And yeah. sometimes it's the, uh, the all-star quarterback. You know, I've seen that happen. The, the, the honor roll student, it could be anybody like these mental health issues just crop up. We don't know that they're, they're there. And so what do we do? Um, I'm asking you as the candidate running for office and a mom that's been through this, how do we fix these issues with our criminal justice that doesn't seem to, understand that these are mental health issues and should not be criminal and should not be just punitive like you're punishing someone for having an illness in, in a lot of respects right we wouldn't treat someone with a cancer diagnosis like that and so it's right it's like an in invisible disability that's what we call it in um you know my day job we say with people with indiv uh, invisible disabilities and so how do we fix it i think we fix it in a number of ways um First of all, we have to recognize like where the disparities are. They're in like highly 
um, <clears throat> highly populated, right? A lot of times urban communities, um, there are weights like that tend to be like lower income there, the access to services, like what is, um, like an access to service, like in a timely manner. So if you have six to nine months and those weights have been exasperated up till COVID and COVID, I think, um, some, some resources were shifted so that people could get help in a more timely manner. Um, but when you have those, like when you have lags and, and treatment, the likelihood of someone like encountering or having an altercation with the justice system is it's high. So understanding it and like talking about it, you, I am running on the belief that first of all, diversity has to be a part of the courtrooms. And it's not just about diversity of culture, although that is like, that's, that's important. I'm also talking about occupational backgrounds of people. Like no one's talking about mental health um, when they're screening for the judges. Everyone's putting all this emphasis on their training and credentials to serve. But there are larger issues. What about the community? <laughs> We're the ones who are gonna be impacted. What about the challenges that are happening? What are your views on mental health? What are your biases? Everyone, like we've been talking a lot, right? This really connects into police reform. And I was having this conversation recently um, because if first voice that's elevated, uh, particularly in a district court matter, is what's ever written on that police report. So you have to screen your judges for bias because otherwise, if they are disconnected from the community and they don't understand the needs and challenges, they're gonna read resisting arrest, ran, and they're gonna make assumptions. They're gonna assume it's implied guilt when maybe, again, going into like, what are the disparities in the community? That individual could have been running for a number of reasons. Maybe fear, maybe not even fear out of being killed by the police, but maybe um, they were having like scary visions or maybe they were hearing voices, you know, maybe something else was going on. But um, if, if you don't have someone in there who really understands the community, like this is what happens. Our disparities in the criminal justice system here in Massachusetts, United States, we have the highest incarceration rates, but in Massachusetts, we have more, we have higher incarceration rates than the UK and France in this state. And more than half of those individuals haven't even been, um, like haven't gone through the due process. They haven't even been convicted yet. And many of them are nonviolent crimes. So wh why do we resort to incarceration? So diversity and implicit bias has to be uh, part of the discussion. It, it going forward if we're really going to make um, some, a difference. I've noticed that a lot of the judges that get, you know, because this, this job, this governor council job, again, we're speaking to Helena Fonts. She's running uh, in District 6 in Massachusetts for uh, the governor's council. And there's a lot of things that the governor's council has a say in. Uh, one of the biggest for me and a lot of folks and I think yourself, because you're already speaking about it, is the judges. They get to have it a say on the appointed judges that the governor ultimately, I think he decides, but you guys, have, you know, if, if you're elected to this governor's council, you have a very big say on this. Um, and you get to vote on it. And a lot of the judges, it seems like, are former law enforcement, former district attorneys, former politicians, but usually Republicans right now, and usually totally law and order people. Um, and a lot of times we, you know, I, I wish I had more time because I, I want to 
almost go to these courts, but I, I see some of the work that Court Watch does, Court Watch Mass on Twitter and other groups like that. And they just show up at the, at the courts and just record what's going on. And it's atrocious. You've already mentioned some of the things that people are just held in jail for months and years without being convicted before, the, before they've been convicted. You know, the, the bail just keeps them in jail. Sometimes they're homeless. They can't afford even a $500 bail. So they just sit in jail for the, for the winter. Um, this happens all the time in Massachusetts. It doesn't need to be that way. How, how would you treat, like, like let's say that Governor Baker has a, a, an appointee, a judge before you, and he's a former state police lieutenant, or, you know, he's the former colonel of the state police, or he's the former law enforcement health and safety guy. You know what I'm saying? He's one of these big wigs in law enforcement. Let's say it's a former Boston uh, police chief or something like that. How, how would you, what kind of questions would you ask? How, how would you kind of attack that? Yeah, so I'm always looking at, um, again, there's so much emphasis on like, you know, their credentials, like their training, like the nominee themselves. I really want to look at character, background, values, beliefs. Who are you and like, what can, what, what, who are, like what activities are you involved in? So like perspective is huge as we're talking about biases that sit there on an unconscious level. So like someone, you know, really scenarios kind of help pull this information out, right? Because they really get to, if you have someone in your courtroom and they're there on prostitution charges, do you see a prostitute or do you see a person who might be struggling with housing, homelessness perhaps, maybe addiction? Like again, we're talking about human beings, right? We have the same judge that has the power to incarcerate also has an opportunity to help and point people um, in the direction of helpful community resources. And actually a judge mandating it expedites that and gets that person services again where there's disparities. So you have an opportunity there. So do you see a human being here, right? Because these biases like prostitute, these labels, offender, defendant, um, perpetrator, they dehumanize a person, they take away their humanity and they remove that empathy that's critical, right? To making, it's that definer between incarceration or helpful resources. So always looking to, to see where, you know, their, their mindsets on how they see things. And then what is your demonstrate? Like, not just, don't just tell me, demonstrate. What activities have you been involved in? Um, what have you done? Like what shows and demonstrates that, you know, you understand the, the challenges in, in this particular community. Um, yeah. So that's, that's really what I'm looking for. Awesome. I love that. Uh, you, that's what I think what we really need too. Helena Fonts is running for the Massachusetts governor's council in Massachusetts. Uh, the day you can vote if you're doing in-person voting is uh, September 1st, Tuesday, September 1st, but voting, really has kind of already started with uh, what what do we call this early vote and it's not even early it's mail-in voting now right mail-in voting mail-in voting has started some people it each cities and communities different um, some have started to receive their mail-in um, ballots um, I have not yet but I did um, you have to first if you haven't already you wanna there's a number of ways to request your mail-in ballot. Um, you can, there's a website, you can go right on um, the Secretary Gal, Galvin's website and get it. Um, and they can have it mailed to you, this early mail. 
um, for those who are a little bit skeptical, because I hear people say, well, I want to make sure it gets there. So there's early voting, which I did for the first time last year. Seemed pretty seamless. I was in and out, and it wasn't like a large crowd. Or there's some who are more traditional and like to go to the polls on polling day. So that is an option as well. Just make sure your polling location hasn't changed because of COVID. Um, some polling locations may have changed. So double check. Lots of ways to vote. More options this year. Well, I'm, I'm going to say, like, usually I hold out, like, we have a lot of election, you know, interviews. And usually we try to get, like, both candidates on. Like, I'm, I'm doing that for Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey right now. A lot of people want me to endorse Ed Markey, and I'm just like, hold on, let's see if we can get Joe Kennedy on. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I know there's another guy that's been in office. I think he, I think he has a seat now. Terrence Kennedy, is that right? Is he the Terrence incumbent? Kennedy. Yes, he, um, he is the incumbent. I believe this is his fifth term. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Terrence is a bad guy. I think he's actually one of the better reps in the governor's council. From what I've seen, I don't know too much about it. But you mm -hmm. know what? I'm going to endorse you right now because I'm all in on this. Helena, I've signed your paperwork. We need someone like yourself who, who works, you know, in addiction. Yeah. You're, you're a local person. You're a black woman. I mean, this is what we need. We need some new blood. I want to ask you, like, do you know how many, are, are there any women of color on that board right now? No, there are no people of color and there's never been a person of color ever. Um, every Historically, that um, the council has been comprised of um, white individuals, um, primarily with um, law enforcement or legal backgrounds, mainly attorneys. Lawyers, yeah, attorneys and so consultants, lobbyists, uh, you know, people who make big campaign contributions. Yes, there. I mean, so for me personally, I think that's the advantage to myself because I'm not someone, I'm not an aspiring politician. Um, I'm someone who's coming because I'm really passionate about this. I've, I've experienced it personally. I see it in my work at all every day. Um, and it's, it's a painful reality. I live in a community that's impacted by it. Um, but I think that's an advantage to my um, candidacy because I'm not walking in these spaces regularly, meaning like in and out of court. And I don't have like some of the interpersonal um, relationship that can really get complicated. We saw that in the Ahmad Arbery case like in when when certain um spaces and certain disciplines um they're really small mental health everyone who works in mental health we, we all know each other right no matter where we are in the state because the community's small there's only like a few hundred of us same um, with legal right there's there aren't like a ton of attorneys um so they tend to know each other and it, it gets really complicated i believe that could be a factor in it too you, you generally know the people who are up for nomination. You've crossed right. quite a bit in, in courtrooms. And really, to be honest, um, you know, my campaign is not about like thinking Kennedy's a bad guy. I actually met him a couple of times. I actually thought he was quite personable and funny. It really is more about um, like a commitment. I, I have the experience. There's something about actually having experienced it yourself that like really gives you that fire and that push, like, no, we have to get it done because the conversations aren't happening about diversity. They're not happening about, uh, happening about our incarceration rates. You don't hear the council saying, hey, you know, like we, we don't have any, any um, like anything in print where there's been conversations on, like, what are we gonna do? The state of our incarceration here in the state, who's being incarcerated, the disparities, 
the cannabis. It's shocking. It's, 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 it's here you say that there has not been a person of color. Yeah. No, on the governor's not. council, not one, and and a, a woman of color. You'll be the first woman of color, the first one on this on this. Yeah, co- the you know, first person of color on this council. I mean, this, this this and this is so big. Like we're talking about Black Lives Matter all the time. Mm-hmm. This is like the Black Lives Matter office, like because mm-hmm. this decides the judges. Like that's so important in all of this, and to have have the communities most impacted by the judicial system to not have any representation on there. None. The black women don't have any, I mean, that is just. Yeah. So again, that's why I'm endorsing you. I'm asking everyone to vote for you. Like right now, if they have the ballot in front of them, mail it in. Uh, You have something to vote for. People say all the time, oh, they're all the same. There's nothing to vote for. No, there are good candidates that run. You just have to look for them and find them and vote for them. And sometimes lately they're winning. So. Yeah, let's win this one, right? No, absolutely. And in terms of like, you know, just even linking it to the cannabis community, I mean, prior to the legalization of marijuana, you have a lot of individuals right now who are still incarcerated, although now it's been legalized. And there's these conversations about pardons and and sentence commutations. But here's the reality. The current council continuously um, keeps voting into approving the, the same parole board um, that's slow to act, um, individuals, the, the, the process of pardons and commutation starts with the parole board. They receive the applications. They are the group that makes recommendations to the governor. Then the governor with the governor's council moves to approve them. It's not happening because our parole board, again, is monopoli- monopolized by individuals with law enforcement backgrounds. There's seven seats. Only um, five of those seven are individuals, um, former prosecutors, sheriffs, law enforcement, um, and only one clinical psychologist. Now, they're supervising people in the community. However, 90% of the parole violations that that result in reincarceration are technical. They are not criminal, meaning failure to pay parole fines, and I have to ask myself, huh? Um, failure to find employment in a timely manner, having a glass of wine, missing a urine. Um, so how, if we're in the, in the, and people waiting a year for a parole hearing, and then years after being approved to actually be released, it's a mess. Um, and the, this board, they, they paid, uh, it's five-year terms. They have to be reapproved and voted every five years. They're paid $130,000 a year. Why can't we make this more competitive? Shouldn't we look for innovative individuals who work in other disciplines besides law enforcement? So again, it's about bringing this up and, and calling it out and saying, hey, this, this parole board isn't working. And I think you have a right, um, given their responsibilities and the amount of pay they get to, to uh, like hold them to high standards and not just vote yes, because they're up for reaffirming. Hey, come on. So that's what I'll say there. Awesome. Um, there's been a lot going on. I'm glad you brought up the cannabis issue because that's obviously a big one for me and our community here. Mm-hmm. Like generally, I'm guessing that you're, you, you get the whole cannabis issue and especially like we just saw a story this like two weeks ago about a guy in Framingham I, I wish I had his exact age, but I think his name was Marvin Cook or something like that. 
Um, and he, he was a black guy and he's like 60 something years old and he got caught with like 10 dime bags, like basically like probably a hundred dollars or 150, $200 worth of pot at, at the most. Yeah. And because it was packaged up for individual sale in these small little packages, you know, the Framingham police decided to charge him for distributing cannabis and he's like, you know, ring him up on a felony charge, put his face on the newspaper. And for a lot of us, it's just so shocking, ridiculous, disgusting. It's repulsive to see them do that to this guy. And I'm sure he's a great guy. Like I, I'm looking at this guy and saying, you know what, if this is all he's ever done in his life, like really, like, does he deserve to get his picture in the paper for that? Like what would your stance be on that? Like in terms of just if you're in this office for mass governor's council, well, here's what I think about cannabis. So it's really, to me, I see it as um, an alternate form of therapy, alternate treatment, right? We know this much. In my working in mental health, um, pharmaceutical drugs, and particularly those that you're prescribed over the long term, actually can cause like long-term health effects. This is, it's particularly true with psychiatric drugs. Psychiatric drugs um, can actually induce and, um, and like promote um, psychosis, right? And it's predicted that for individuals um, that have psychiatric diagnoses because of all the medications that they're taking, um, their, their life, they are projected to live 25 years less than the average person, right? Um, and so that's problematic because a lot of people that are prescribed again, like, and they're on a lot of medications, um, it affects their quality of life. Some say like medications make them really tired, fatigued. They feel like out of it, zoned out, um, like out of touch, right? And people are looking for alternatives. Human beings have had like natural, marijuana's grown, it's natural. It's, it's um, right from the ground. Since the beginning of time, human beings have used um, all different remedies and treatments. So um, I think with marijuana um, and with the selling, like, I don't know the specifics of that situation, but it was, it hasn't been legalized that long. And so if you wanted an option, an alternative to pharmaceutical drugs, you had no choice but to look for it outside in your community, right? Um, and so it's really a shame because I think now they're doing more research and they're, and they're seeing it. But I mean, there was a time when there was a lot of discussion this years back about like, oh, it's a, it's a gateway drug. I, I don't believe it's a gateway drug. I, I see it as an alternative, uh, more natural alternative, honestly, than all the chemicals and preservatives that are put in pharmaceutical drugs. Um, and helps people with like um, just common like anxiety, right? Right. My son, he, I mean, I mean myself. Um, I have, I do not smoke marijuana, but my son says, "Hey, it helps me with my marijuana." The difference between the guy out on the street and the pot shop is like thirty, forty, fifty dollars. So again, looking at okay, now it's legalized. It's, it's everywhere, but it's not affordable. So I, I, I can see. Like I have in some regards, some sympathy for this guy because I know that like people, I've heard it, like it's very, it's expensive. I don't have, mm. and the quantities are smaller. Yeah. Um, that's, that's why, that's why a lot of us legally go to Maine now. Yeah. Like we, we have medical cards. We, we go to Maine because mass yeah. is so messed up. 
Yeah. It's like, it's like when, you know, uh, patients were going for their HIV drugs in California, they were going to Mexico. Yeah. It's, it's like, th this is what's going on. There's a lot of gouging going on yeah. and this guy gets pinched. I just, it bugs the crap out of me. Um, I, since we're talking about cannabis, I want to ask you another one because you're in the addiction field. Yeah. When cannabis comes up, I've, I've interviewed different people in addiction on, like some people think cannabis is evil in the addiction scene, and then some people totally get it and say, no, it's not evil. It's actually a tool for some people. It can be a problem for others. But mm -hmm. um, specifically what I've seen recently that happens a lot, which frustrates me, and I want to ask you if you think this is a big problem because um, you're in, involved in this, but some of the homeless folks that I talk to tell me that a lot of the programs, um, you know, and, and like one of my friends, he's uh, homeless, he's a former opiate addict, he's a mm -hmm. former, you know, alcohol addict. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that helps him like, you know, stay sane and, and keeps his spirits up when he's homeless and mm -hmm. having tough luck is cannabis. And like no shell, a lot of the shelters won't allow them permanent housing. They won't let them in the programs, apparently, if they're using cannabis publicly. Like a lot of the, he says a lot of the people will, you know, use it, but not tell anyone and hide it because they don't want to lose their housing. But it's always their fear that they're going to lose their housing because they got caught, you know, smoking some medicine that made them feel better and kept them off of heroin and things like that. Do you see that as an issue? And like one of the places in Salem that he mentioned he said their excuse was the federal, you know, because it's still federally illegal. We have federal funding, so we have to, we have to go that way. Yeah, I do. I think um, it, it's really like anything. I think that's new. It's like, oh, it's so taboo, right? Even as states are starting to legalize it. And again, it's just, um, it's really like our ideology. I think for so long, we like, I think collectively not there's pockets of individuals who kind of, you know, have always sought like alternative treatments, but um, like farm, like we turn to pharmacology for the solutions to our ailments, right? That's kind of like, you know, just our ideology as a society. So here's cannabis. And again, I think you have um, a lot of groups over the years that have really said like, ooh, marijuana is that gateway drug. If you use that, you're you're gonna, you know, open yourself up to, you know, all these other addictions. And again, like just looking at, um, like recovery, like in that, so so people like like it helps like with everyday like struggles that people might have, anxiety, like things that again um, contribute to a better quality of life, and it's an alternative. So I think it's like really talking about that narrative and like taking away, like like it's been demonized, like we had the war on drugs and drugs are just terrible. And so I don't think it's really seen for like uh, a tool for treatment. I've watched my son now. I mean, my son has been using marijuana. There was a time when I was telling him like, no, 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 you're smoking way too much marijuana. You know, I think you're gonna end up like, you know, addicted to something. I was one of those, like this is going back to, like when he was like 16, 17, I was like, no, you can't do that. Like, I don't want you to have an addiction. And over time, just from observing him, never mind like what I've seen and the addiction and, and my work with individuals recovering from addiction um, is that it, it really can, it has benefits. Like it helps him relax at night. He has, um, you know, trouble and difficulty calming, relaxing for sleep. I see that it aids with that. 
I think it um, like really takes off some of that stress and even depression. Like there's times when I've seen him really, you know, upset and the marijuana can like kind of help put him in a different space. And there's other elements to recovery. And I, I, again, I think like pushing back on that, you know, like the war on drugs narrative, like, oh, these drugs are so bad and this is the gateway. Um, I think it really does have like, you know, a pos I think it has like a positive attributes and is able to help people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't, my like philosophy on it has changed a lot. Yeah. Um, in like the, I don't know, I'd say the last 10 years almost just from seeing the benefits and seeing the harmful consequences of um, other drugs prescribed. Definitely. That's the key too, because like uh, way back, I had a best friend, he passed away, but he used to tell the story about himself and his mom. They both had the same issues, OCD, really obsessive, like really, you know, and, and other issues too, mental health. And his mom... Uh, was on every prescription and he was as well and when his mom died like she had tried the medical cannabis one time and it worked it calmed her down mm -hmm. but she was so afraid that someone would find out because it was illegal she wouldn't use it anymore and when he died he found shopping bags just full of drugs like and some of my other friends like Stephen Mandilli who was a, a U.S. you know veteran who got injured in Iraq and came back with you know major spinal issues and tons of surgeries, all that stuff. And on dozens of, of prescriptions, like you name it, he was on it. Like, like, so like shopping bags. That's what people are on. They're on, they're on like dozens of pills to treat other pills that they're on. Yeah. I mean, it just gets out of control. And a lot of these folks end up just getting down to nothing. They just use like myself, even all I use is cannabis. I've had a lot of issues myself with health wise and mm -hmm. I treat everything with cannabis once in a while for my back. I'll, I'll take one of those OTC pills, but I'm afraid of those. You know, those are a lot of these prescriptions I feel like too are great for short term gaps, you know, especially the pills. Yeah. But like you said, if you're going to use these for 20 or 30 years, yeah. I'd rather use cannabis. <laughs> yeah. And they're going to have long term. And a lot of times like, they might be healing something like one part of you and like your liver and you know your digestive tract like just from over like long-term use talking again about pharmaceutical drugs um you know deteriorates them and breaks them down right um and even like individuals with cancer um who are like in late stage cancer and who are like on the brink of dying they're given cannabis prescriptions to kind of help with the pain so yeah, I, I, and, and that is not seen as like taboo. So again, I think it's really just about like pushing against the narrative. And I think part of that comes in time, part of it comes in conversation because um, I don't think we talk enough about the harmful consequences of pharmaceutical drugs. I know there's been some interest in it or at least some um, talk about like pharmacology recently through like the opioid epidemic, but outside of like creating a demic and a uh, 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 epidemic and an addiction, it is also, it also creates other health problems. So I think we're getting there. And um, yeah, I think alternatives are always best. It's natural, comes from the ground. Thank you, we're speaking to Helena Fonts, uh, running for Massachusetts Governor's Council, District 6 in Massachusetts. You can vote for her 
like right now, if you're doing the early mail-in vote or you want to wait till, you know, maybe you want to wait till September 1st, the primary day or early voting, there's a lot of opportunities, a lot of ways to vote Massachusetts in this primary. She's going to be on the ballot district, district six. I am voting for her. I just endorsed her. If it matters to anybody, go vote for her, support her, check her out. How can people find out more information about your campaign and how to your campaign, Alina? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you can find me um, on my, I would say the best way is to go to my website because from there you can get links to my uh, social media accounts. And my website is um, www.helenafontes.com. And um, I wonder, will there be a link for people to see that will have the spelling or should I try to spell it out? No, we'll, we'll uh, definitely be in the podcast. I'll put the link in and I can also put a comment to yeah. on the uh, live video feeds that people are watching too. So you can look for that. Definitely. Yep. Awesome. Yep. And you can, um, so you can find me there, find out how to contact me. Uh, and there's lots of ways to get involved. And I'm really um, excited. A lot of change going on, a lot of positive, a lot of difficult. Uh, it's been a difficult year for sure. Um, a lot of, I think like, just the overall awakening of like where we really are. Like I think for myself, the one of the advantages of like the pandemic and, and being like slowed down, forcefully slowed down is I feel more awake to like what's actually happening and the disparities and like, you know, and it's a, it's a really um, unique time to make uh, some much needed change like just all the disparities are so glaring and in your face. So for those that are just logging on, I'm trying to create some balance. <laughs> Definitely. And you're running for, again, Governor's Council in Massachusetts. It's really an important seat. Uh, it really has having to do with checking the governor and kind of making sure. The first time Helena was telling us that this, this would be the first time a, a person of color, a woman of color, would be on this governor's council. It's one of the most important seats statewide in the whole state of Massachusetts. It decides a lot. It decides things like parole board and judges who gets appointed. This is important. Check this out. If you care about cannabis, if you care about Black Lives Matter, care about all these different progressive causes, guess what? You want to be knowing what's going on with this mass governor's council. And you can help her. Not often we get great candidates like this. I want to ask you, yes, because we have some other races right now. There's this U.S. Senators race. Have you yes. noticed this with Ed Markey versus Joe yeah. Kennedy the yes. third? Uh, what do you think about the race? Have you picked anyone? Have Have they asked you to endorse them? What What, what do you think? No, about they have not asked me to endorse, but um, I am definitely Ed Markey. Um, I'm very. I mean, just I'm gonna. I just. Um, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I, I, I'm running against the Kennedy, I promise. Um, is, I, is he really? He's not related to the Kennedys, though. No, Terrence no, a, there's no yeah. relation. But Terrence is a different Kennedy branch. Okay. Yeah, he is. Well, no, someone recently brought that, that up as a joke. So I just, yeah. yeah. Bye. Um, no, I think um, Ed just has a really strong progressive track record. He cares about working class people. Um, he's been doing the work. It's not just talk like, you know, as um, one of the originators of the Green New Deal, um, it's that's going to benefit like so many um, marginalized communities. Um, so I'm really I, he's been there. I, I recently um, 
this was going back in February, he came and spoke at the Massachusetts, every year the, the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health does an annual breakfast, he came and spoke. And this was before I was really paying attention. I don't even think at that time I even knew um, Mark um, Kennedy was, was had joined the race. Um, I really was like inspired by him. I thought, yeah, you know, he's doing a great job. So that's who I'm supporting, Ed Markey. Um, nothing against Joe Kennedy. I'm sure he's great, but um, you know, there's we have a lot of um, you know, there's there's a lot of inequities, and I feel um, confident that Ed will you know really address those. So. Awesome, thank you. Um, so looking at uh, just you know the general state of Massachusetts right now, mm -hmm. are we in trouble? Like, is this state going to be in trouble with like you know? because of the funding situation, the coronavirus. It seems like to me, like we're on the edge of catastrophe that no one knows about it. Am I just getting too like worried about things? Well, I was told, I haven't fact checked yet, but I was told just a few minutes ago that something like 2 million um, individuals lost their jobs in Massachusetts right. this week, this past week. Um, so there's definitely an economic downturn coming. Um, a lot of like businesses, I mean, I took my daughter to the mall this past, the weekend, not this past, this weekend, but the weekend, a week ago, <laughs> we were in the mall and some, all the big chains were open and some of the smaller, like independently owned stores had their rates down. They, they weren't reopening. And I see that pretty consistent with, um, a lot of the small businesses here in Lynn. So like you see disparities there, right? Because a lot of them are, you know, like we're, um, they're working class, they're minority owned. And so again, like I think they're, they're, it, it's gonna be a rough time. And why I feel important about like running and having us at the table is because often like the discussions, like we get left out of um, you know the discussions, our needs aren't really looked after, and I don't just mean people of color. I also mean individuals that you know are low income that might have disabilities. Um, and so I think it's now more than ever. Like people like me, I'm not like I said, I don't have a strong political background. I'm not an aspiring politician. I'm someone who's experienced it. I'm just you know frustrated and you know, kind of jumped in the race. And I need a lot more of that, like everyday people at the table so that, you know, we matter, we come first. Cause that's just, I don't see that happening. So. I've noticed it's yeah. like, when we first started this show, uh, even the other show we used to do, we used to always have like third party candidates or even people who would run in primaries, they would never win. Yeah. And more recently, like people have started winning, like that come on the show. I, and I and I think it's like the world's been catching up to what we've been talking about kind of. I don't think it's like us, like I don't think this show has influenced like many campaigns to win, but I just think the world catches up to you. And we're starting to see it happen. Uh, and we're starting to see regular people like pick up endorsements and win. Like, like I'll give you an example, Julia Mahia, yeah. first time ever running, came on our show like four times, won by, I think one vote in the end in her primary. I mean, I, you know, it's just amazing, like the stuff that's been happening. It's been happening a lot lately. Um, 
have you picked up any endorsements? I thought that you did get uh, endorsed by Our Revolution, Massachusetts, but I'm not sure. Is that correct? Am I wrong on that? What's you did, Our Revolution, Somerville. Um, I've been endorsed by um, New Progressive Leaders, Massachusetts Women's Political Caucus, Run for Something, um, and I'm missing someone. This is terrible because I should know this. Um, it will come to me. In the meantime, I'll list. Um, I've been meeting um, with, because I'm running in a Democratic primary, so I'm meeting with um, the different Democratic city committees. I'm excited because many of them will be announcing their endorsements um, next week in time for Get Out the Vote. Um, but so far, um, Somerville Ward 3 has endorsed, and that was really exciting. And the last organization to endorse, oh, I'm sorry, um, the Chinese Progressive Political Action Association has endorsed me as well. So it's really awesome. exciting and I have others in the works. Um, so yeah, or pending I should say. So yeah, it's, it's amazing because when you come on a journey like this, especially when you're someone like me who has never done this before and I'm a complete political outsider, and I had a message even then back in January that I think resonated with some, but like the urgency wasn't there. This is prior to George Floyd, prior to Ahmaud Arbery. And I'm saying, hey, um, black and brown communities are being oppressed. Like our kids are being incarcerated wrongfully. And to some, like it wasn't as, as popular or as urgent as it was. And I love what you said, the world caught up. And I just did it. And that's what happens. Like, so to see that, you know, people like see and, and to be able to connect and hear of, I so I only know it from a black and brown perspective, right, being a black woman. There are other communities, like in, in the Chinese community, they have experienced brutality in their own way and oppression. So like hearing the stories and then like, oh, you know, seeing how we have an opportunity to like ally and make some change. And it kind of like excites me because I want to go in there, like bringing as many voices with me as possible. I don't just want to go and just look after black and brown communities. I want to go and look after disability communities and other minority communities, immigrant communities, like where there is no voice. So yeah, it's been amazing. Awesome journey. We're talking to uh, Helena Fontes. She's running uh, for Massachusetts Governor's Council. Uh, District 6, you can vote for in a bunch of cities and towns. You can look up on our website. We're going to list it in the uh, comments on our video feed. And you'll also see it on our podcast. If you're listening to this later, just check the description. It'll be right there. Uh, we're the Young Jerks. My name is Mike Crawford. And again, we have a great candidate running for office. Uh, she's been endorsed by some awesome groups. You already mentioned Our Revolution uh, Somerville, the city of Mass uh, Somerville, Massachusetts. The Our Revolutionary Branch has uh, endorsed her. There's also, I know, like Our, Our Revolution Malden. Have you have you talked to them at all? Have you heard from them? Yes, I have. Um, I, I've been in touch with them. They have been hugely supportive. Um, I'm not actually sure. that I think that's endorsement that's pending. I don't want to say they haven't just in case because they haven't officially announced it, but um, they have been amazing to me, absolutely. Our revolution in general, I just, um, I, I kind of stumbled upon them on the campaign trail and I was like, oh, I just like, I want to stay connected post um, campaign because I love what they're doing and picking things up in our politics. So it's more person centered. I, I got really mad at them at one point because they wouldn't endorse one of my favorite people way back. 
Tito Jackson. And I kind of like, I sent someone in to harass Bernie Sanders about it. <laughs> but now I'm cool because now like, I'm like, well, I think they caught, they either made like, I don't know. It, it's a long story. We don't need to get in that. That's my personal issues, but you know, I've been with them like almost everything now. Like I, I like almost most campaigns. I'm like, are you endorsed by our revolution? And everyone's like, yep, 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 yep. I'm like, good. Like they're making the right choices now. So I'm yeah. happy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've come around. I've come around, I guess. That's how I, sometimes I'm a jerk too. Like sometimes you have to be a jerk to like get things addressed. And if, if I need to be that guy, I will. Yeah, like the squeaky wheel, because I'm, hey, I've learned that's like you have to be assertive, right? Jerk, right. assertive. I like to think of it as assertive. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that make, make them know that you're here. I mean, that's what, that's what voting is, too. We got to let them know we're here. Uh, you have an, a huge opportunity to vote for someone great for governor's council. That's going to affect the courts in Massachusetts. It's going to affect a lot of things in Massachusetts. Why should everything be run by suits, by lobbyists, by former law enforcement? Why can't we have someone who represents the people more? A, a first woman of color on the council. This is a statewide council that decides a lot in Massachusetts. We, this would be the first woman of color on the Mass Governor's Council. Just for that, you should vote for it. And also, she's a director, a mental health director, you know, at an agency in Massachusetts, nonprofit. Like, we also need that. There's, I guarantee you on that, on that Governor's Council, they're not spending a lot of time thinking about mental health. Not at all. Which is one of the biggest issues in the state. Yeah, and it's actually one of the biggest groups that is incarcerated for nonviolent offenses again. So um, there's a lot of discrimination and um, the parole board currently has uh, multiple lawsuits right now for um, mental health discrimination in terms of not releasing people um, and they're being sued. So yeah, we need that perspective there, absolutely. I hope you win. I can't wait to vote for you. I'm really excited. I'm gonna get my whole family. I'm gonna tell everyone, Helena, Montes, I've said it a couple different ways, but I think I you, you don't you you say you say it the wrong way. Actually, you said. Yeah, I do. I do. So it's okay. Yeah, I do. It's so, fine. Helena um, Fontes is what we're going yeah. with. That's yeah. the way you like it. You prefer it. That's the way I prefer it. Um, I mean, the way I pronounce it, I actually don't have a preference, and I'm not one to ever correct someone when they mispronounce my name, and then they say, "Why didn't you tell me?" And I yeah. say, I didn't really see it as significant. It's That's okay. right. <laughs> See, I got people that call me Crawford or Crawford. I, I, either way, it's fine with me. Crawford. <laughs> I think it's the tone you use. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, we're, we're the Young Jerks. And again, we have a great guest. Uh, I want to thank you so much for spending Sunday night. Uh, you're running for Mass Governor's Council, District 6, Helena Fontes. Uh, she's got a website you can send some money to her you make yeah. a ca campaign contribution you can vote for her right now if you're early doing early uh, mail voting or you can just wait till september 1st if you want to do that yeah. and i i know a lot of people li listening up like on the north shore where we're at so you know if you're in lynn and you're in some of these other towns and cities she mentioned definitely go vote for her please do that i appreciate it um and Thank you. I, I, I want to say, do you have anything last, like you want to kind of make your last pitch, I guess, to the people or anything you want to bring up today? 
Yeah, no, I, I actually am just really grateful um, for the opportunity. I liked this dialogue because um, it's like we just kind of had uh, like discussion about things I don't always get to expound on because usually I go and I have five minutes to give a, give a presentation and I have, you know, like my stump speech. So this was really nice uh, to have a dialogue about um, everything from the governor's council, uh, parole board, cannabis, commutations, and why it all matters. I am really grateful for your time. This has been an amazing opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. I really, I appreciate it a lot. Thank you. I always say we're about to wrap up and then I always ask my uh, guests like other questions. That's another issue I have. So I'm definitely gonna ask you one more question. Okay. Because you're also in uh, like, you know, mental health addiction is your specialty, what you work in right now. Uh, there's been a big debate in the state of Massachusetts about safe injection sites or, you know, there's different terms for them, but wh where do you stand on that or safe drug use, supervised drug use, whatever we want to call this, uh, where are you cut on that? I'm not even sure. Okay. Um, safe and do you know what we're talking about? Um, so I think we're talking about for, um, like IV users. Yes. Mostly, okay. and it could be other drugs too, but mostly yeah, IV drug users. It's kind of let them, um, you know, a lot of times it's testing the drugs on site to make sure it's, you know, they know what it is. Cause that's a common issue where people overdose cause they don't know what they're shooting into their arm. So it, it gives them a safe site with a doctor or nurse overlooking it and making sure that they're not gonna die alone, that they're gonna kind of overdose and it offer, you know, it offers them treatment if they want it as well. And they've done these in other places like Vancouver and you know overseas and other in Europe, and it's something that a lot of people in treatment you know want to try here in America. Oh, okay. So, um, like without having done too much research, it sounds to me so like to say, for instance, like no, IV use is wrong. We're not. We're going to criminalize it and start locking people up, like not putting in sites, and then but also like people still using it and then it's like criminal offense, right? It's not gonna solve the, the, the problem and people are gonna continue to IV use because there's a lot of other sure. factors that contribute to addiction. So to me, I'm hearing a safe, a safer way for people who are struggling. It doesn't sound Sorry. like some might think, oh, this is an enabling um, app. Like we are telling people it's okay to use. Um, and so I would always want to balance that with like, if we're, I think it's important like that where, you know, people do have safety because you're right. People are dying. I mean, it's. Yeah. Like death. I had a friend die in a bathroom alone, yeah. you know, and I didn't even know he was like, you know, I wasn't that close to him in that way, but I, I miss him. He was a great guy. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that someone had been there and his, his girlfriend told me that he was embarrassed even to share it with her. So like she knew something was up and that if she had been there, you know what I mean? If she had known, right. he died alone, you know, because no one, no one was there to check his blood pressure and call the ambulance when, you know, he got a bad batch or, you know, so I just, you know, I, it's called, yeah. you know, harm protect, harm reduction is what a lot of people refer to it as. And I think a lot of times too, it's like, you, someone can't get treatment if they die. Like that's my, you know, like sometimes it's, and it takes sometimes like 17 times. Like a lot of people who get through treatment, sometimes it's the 17th time that stuck, you know? 
No, you're absolutely right. And I think like sometimes, you know, what's behind like, you know, some of the ideologies that would like really oppose this is this belief, like people, I don't believe that anyone aspires to be anything but the best version of themselves. But along the way, things happen, right? So if we can always remember this is a human being who has like, you know, a potential and like try to like, you know, even in their toughest moments, like do things like have sites that are safe, right? Um, so that if, you know, we can preserve a life and acknowledge that addiction is a disease, right? And it's, it's a sickness. It's not a matter of poor choices, poor judgment. And that there's, I mean, a lot of other things, including um, pharmacology, like, you know, could be contributing to some of that addiction for a lot of people who started off with other medications, always keeping, I guess, the person first. So that sounds to me like something I would probably support um, just from hearing what you said, because, um, yeah, it's protecting a life. I, I, I think um, protecting the life is important. Um, and then, you know, I think also, um, I don't know, I, I always hear like, I, I, you talked earlier about this law and order. Like, I think a lot of, I think a lot of times there's like, I think it's an older school of thought, like, you know, that tough love, like that changes people. That is not true. Our brains are physiologically wired for reward. So um, we like being punished and, and you know, continuously punished for things like that whole idea that that's what, you know, promotes change. That's not true. When you give people tools uh, and when they have, like if a lot of people, they may not know how to function and how to be the best version of themselves. They might need help with mood regulation. They might have unresolved trauma. Again, right, when we're looking at disparities and access to care and who's using, you know, mental health. Um, so they don't have the tools. So if, if they're off being offered the tools and then while still trying to, you know, grapple and recover from an addiction that's deadly in a safe way, um, it's got my thumbs up. That's right. You know, it's funny because uh, I, I used to be a, a high school wrestling coach. I wasn't a very good coach, but I, I credit coaches a lot of times. Some of my coaches with like really saving my life. I was a bad kid in a lot of respects and it took a long time, but they saw something in me and I've seen it with other students and athletes. And it's not even about the sports so much. It's just having someone actually believe in you. Um, I feel like, but sometimes like some of the coaching styles work and sometimes they don't. And it's like, sometimes it's a real hard at hard, you know, coaches, like you said, and sometimes that works for some of the kids, but some kids it doesn't work. And like one of the greatest coaches or, you know, sports people in, in Boston ever was Red Auerbach. And he was talking about how, you know, someone said, do you treat Larry Bird and the star like you treat every guy, other guy on the team? And he said, no, they all have a different personality. So I treat Larry Bird one way and I treat this guy another way. I try to find out what's going to motivate them as individuals. Yeah. And some guys like the hard, hard, you know, some, some want to be beaten down because they're, you know, so used to the opposite and they want to, they want to rise to something. And other guys are like, I, I can't listen to that. It's PTSD to me. I mm -hmm. need someone to, to lift me up a little, make me feel good. And yeah. so like, we're all different, you know? And I think that one, sh the one, one thing I learned is one sh size doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. I like and I think that's what diversity and representation is about. It's like, 
It never works that way. It never works that way. If it did, the FBI wouldn't be, you know, um, reducing their, you know, they now they let people who smoke weed go into the FBI. You know, the reason why they do that stuff is because they realize, like, if we don't have some smart stoners in here, <laughs> you know, if we don't have some culture in here, if we don't have hit someone that knows something about hip hop in here, you know, like there's so much more to the world than just the, the one thing. And so yeah. even places like the FBI that were very, and the CIA that were very like, you know, we have these rules that you can't ever, they've changed their rules because they're realizing they have to be more inclusive. If they're not, they're going to miss out on a lot of the world. And they, 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 they need the information. They need the human capital. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, there's nothing like different. Um, if we're all a mixture of nature and nurture, right? And in, in our own unique mixture, then like everyone, you have to assume everyone has something to contribute, right? So it's kind of like we're this big piece of the puzzle. So you're incomplete if you don't have um, multiple voices and perspectives and cultures and experiences at the table. It's to our own detriment. But absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like I, I think you're right. For myself personally, and I, I, I really like to make this a point, and, and I put this, you know, there was some, I, there was some who said they advised me against it in my press release because in my press release, um, when I came out and said, I'm, I'm excited to run for governor's council, I really wanted to emphasize that I am someone, I did grow up in foster care, I was an individual who, who grew up in a family that had un, untreated mental health, like mental health wasn't talked about, wasn't addressed. And for many years of my life, um, like I didn't know how to function in the world. I didn't know about moods. I didn't know how to manage anger. And um, I could sit here and say over the years, like it was people that came and like didn't give up on me. It was the information I received, the tools that I got to be able to like, regulate and to function better. And I was able to recover without incarceration, right? And that's huge because I, I, I myself was one of those people who really struggled um, in the world for a very long time. So um, I know it can happen. And I know, you know, institutions are, are not the solutions, punishment, um, help, support. That's what when you look at, again, I talk about how we're wired. Um, when I say rewards, our brains are, are reward-centered. If I, you know, control my moods, I'm going to enjoy better relationships with my family. Um, and that's a lot of times what motivates people like to addiction, like uh, subconsciously, you know, they're looking for that reward. So we can use the science to our benefit to help people instead of penalize them with prison and spend uh, money, an absorbent amount of money that we could spend to help them in the community. It makes sense. This is what we have so many sensible solutions in front of us, but people have been programmed not to believe it. They believe that the only way it works is to punish people. Right. They don't, they don't look at the science or the other experts. I want to thank you so much. You've made, yeah, this has been a great conversation tonight. I know our listeners have enjoyed it. A lot of people are watching. I want to thank again, uh, Helena Fontes uh, running for Massachusetts governor's council. Uh, you can vote for her right now in Massachusetts district six uh, early voting has started. Mail-in voting has started, I should say. Early voting, I guess, is going to about to start as well. And definitely, if you if you haven't voted, you know, you can wait till September first uh, and vote then. 
a lot of opportunities to vote in Massachusetts, but make sure you do vote. Make sure you vote, and especially if you're a district six, six look at Helena Fontes, Mass Governor's Council. I want to thank you again so much for coming in tonight. Great. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here, and uh, sure, I'll see you around soon. Thanks. Thank you, and I hope it's. Uh, we, I hope we hear from you that you're moving on in the primary. That's what I hope I hear. On September 1st. Yes, yes, we're trying. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Have bye. a great bye now. And again, uh, that was Helena Fonts running for Mass Governor's Council. Thank you so much. We're the Young Jerks. I'll see you next time. The Young Jerks are sponsored by UFCW 1445, a labor union representing cannabis employees in Massachusetts. If you are a cannabis employee worried about your health and safety and are not being heard at work, UFCW local 1445.org or call them at 1-800-439-1445.